0: Welcome to Life on the Illinois Prairie. Your host is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and after 30 years living in small-town Illinois, she has stories to tell. Past cornfields and factories, into the heart of Amish country, there's more here than what meets the eye, far beyond what you think you know. So buckle up and stay tuned. This is Life on the Illinois Prairie.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Fleming Dexter, and welcome to this episode of Life on the Illinois Prairie. Today, we're stepping outside of our usual fair of having tourist places and things to go and visit on the Illinois Prairie, and I'm having a guest who has himself toured many, many, many places. This gentleman was part of what Rolling Stone Magazine has called The best tribute band on earth. I am so pleased to welcome Bobby Potter, who is a member of 1964 The Tribute. Bobby, thank you for being here.
0: Well, good day, Wendy. It's a pleasure.
1: Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you because you have lived such a unique experience that uh, I'm sure listeners would love to have your insights on your experiences. So if you would just give us a little background on, on where you were born and raised and how that phenomenal opportunity came your way.
0: Well, first of all, uh, I was born in Vincennes, Indiana. And uh, for those who are not familiar with Vincennes, uh, this may bring some memories back to you. Um, it's a hometown of Red Skelton, and it also has the George Rogers Clark Memorial for the United States. And the Wabash River runs right through it or right around it. And uh, my hometown, Lawrenceville, Illinois, is where I grew up. And that is nine miles uh, west of Vincennes across the river.
1: Hmm. So how is it that you ended up uh when did you start being a musician when did you when did that catch your your interest
0: Well uh to go way back I started playing snare drum in the 5th grade band <laughs> and then I got my first set of drums in the 7th uh, grade and uh, as they say I never stopped one day I asked my mother I said <laughs> How did you know that I was going to be a drummer? And she said, "Well, you know, when you're when you're real little, that you get out the pots and pans and you start hitting them with the wooden spoons. Well, you never <laughs> stopped. <laughs> so, so things things just kind of progressed from there. Um, geez, I, I I formed helped form a first band I was in. Uh, in the eighth grade called the Apollos. And we played in ver- at various uh, functions in my hometown, like Pancake Days. Um, uh, we even played inside the, the Illinois Gas Company in my hometown, um, you know, for open house, you know, things like that. And then it progressed into high school. Um, and I was in three bands at the same time in high school. I was in the pep band. I was in a Tijuana Brass Band, and hmm. I was in a Top 40 Band. Huh. And that was a lot of fun. Uh, the Tijuana Brass Band, that was a lot of fun.
1: I bet.
0: And uh, then progressing through high school, uh, I'm, we're reaching like age 19 here. Uh, after graduation, I uh, got in contact with uh, uh, these guys in Vincennes that had a band that was playing on the weekend. But I was only 19 and they were playing in these smoky bars and they'd set me in the corner um, (laughs) of the bar, you know, and (laughs) before we go inside, they'd they'd take an eyebrow pencil and paint a mustache on me (laughs) to make me look older. (laughs) So I was was playing in bars. (laughs) Yeah, I was was playing in bars when I was 19. Um, And then that. That, after that passed, uh, I went in the Navy uh, at age 20, and uh, I went to Vietnam for nine months. And then I got back then, they had like an early out. If you, if you uh, uh, paid your time or did your time overseas, they were shuffling us in and out, okay? So I, I was only in the Navy for two years active and then four years inactive uh, when I got hmm. out. And when I got out, uh, I went to uh, Vincennes University and uh, was taking night school. And uh, to jump forward from there, I, uh, I was taking business law. And uh, then I transferred to Eastern. And I met this guy in English class that, had a, uh, that wanted to get a trio together. And, I, and for the life of me, I can't remember his name. Uh, but, uh, that, that only happened probably maybe for about six months. And then I got a call from Greg Heath, who Stacy is well, well informed about. And, um, you said our drummer has to go to, uh, Pit- uh Pittsburgh for a family emergency. He said, can you fill in for this weekend? And that. You know, I mean, that was obviously he found out that I was up there. I knew he was up there and he got a hold of me and I filled in uh, with uh, Fire Creek and <laughs> never looked back from there. And then Stacy <laughs> came in the picture and uh, we rock and roll for a couple of years. And I moved to Champaign with uh, a couple other guys and Fire Creek continued on, did the tri-state area and uh that was like seventy, seventy-five, seventy-six, 75 76 and then i moved to jacksonville um because one of the uh uh members uh knew knew some people over there that that uh wanted us to play in clubs in that area and so hmm. i did that i moved to jacksonville and uh well actually let's back up here a little bit stacy um, Stacy and I would just, like, hang out for uh, occasional times. And uh, then, you remember, Stacy, were you working at the um, post office at that time? I was working at Eastern's post office. Yeah, Eastern's post office. But somehow you came in contact with Steve Houston, the drummer for Head East. Mm -hmm. And was he working for... Uh, the post office in Champagne. I mean, his girlfriend worked at Eastern, so. Oh, okay, okay. So that's how you came in contact with him, and then it was great. I mean, uh, we buddied up, and then and uh, Stacy got us into a couple of Head East rehearsals, and uh, that was a lot of fun. Anyway, <laughs> that's Fire Creek, and and uh, we had a lot of fun playing in Fire Creek and uh did a lot of clubs and functions in the charleston area and surrounding areas and then so when i i left jacksonville i moved to tucson arizona and and uh um uh, formed or, or no i joined this band called isaiah and that happened for maybe about a year and uh one two of the guys in in isaiah We're really into the Beatles and nobody else was. So we formed a a group called the Finders and decided to hit the West Coast. And that was like in 1980. And when we got to Long Beach, there was a friend from my hometown out there that was uh, in the record distributing business. And uh, he put us in contact with uh, these booking agencies, and we started playing in the Long Beach area and Los, Los Angeles area. And that became a conglomerated because you have 5,000 clubs in the Los Angeles area, but you have 10,000 bands. So if your band goes in mm. and says, you know, we're going to play for like three grand for the week, okay? So you have this other band that is not as good that coming in right behind you said, we're going to pay for play for 2000. So these clubs that we were playing in had really good clientele and the owners didn't really care, you know, because they would mm-hmm. always have the same clientele coming in no, no matter who was playing. So um, that got a little old, you know, it kind of pushed us back and we decided to get a hold of these people in Nevada uh, that had um, contacts with all the casinos. Uh, This agency had contacts with all the casinos. And to make a long story short, I I joined a a group called Shake, Rattle, and Roll. And for 12 years, we performed all over Nevada. I can tell you where every pothole is in Nevada. so so after that 12 years um i decided that you know that was enough for the oldies really love the oldies because my forte basically is 50s 60s and 70s a touch of 70s mm-hmm. and you know that that music is so great because every song sounds different and mm-hmm. so we were having a lot of fun doing that but after 12 years i said okay i've I, I really would like to try to find a Beatles show or someone that's really doing, you know, uh, that is respectable. And Mm -hmm. I got in touch with these guys that were playing in this show called rock and roll legends. And they had a, a John Lennon and a Paul McCartney and a, and a Jim Morrison And uh, a buddy, Holly and uh, Jackie Wilson. And I was backing all these guys up. And then the John Lennon and the Paul McCartney said, Hey, you know, like this sounds really good. So why don't we get you a wig and a suit and we'll find a guy who wants to play George. So we did that. And to make another long story short um, that hat, that, that, was probably maybe two years. And then after uh during that course, somehow somebody got a hold of me from from uh California and and uh, gave me a call and said hey this is this is a guy uh that has a Beatles show out here in California and we have been asked to play in Legends in concert in Las Vegas. And that is a very, very well-known, solid show that that has been going on for over 40 years now. But Mm -hmm. at the time, uh, they asked me, said, well, you live in Las Vegas, and the current drummer that we have, he doesn't want to travel. And he lives in Colorado, and he's been commuting back and forth, and he's tired of that, so would you mind auditioning for us? And Mm -hmm. so to make that story short um i joined that group and uh, we played legends in concert for three months in las vegas and then they moved us to this theater in branson after that and this theater uh, at the time uh was housing the osmond brothers And at that time, it was called the Osmond Brothers Theater, obviously. And um, we went in there uh, for three months in the summer of two thousand seven. Now I'm I'm up to two thousand seven here, okay. But to back up a little bit, I lived in Las Vegas for seventeen years, okay. And um, when we went into Branson. We were there for three months, but I met my wife, who at the time uh, had been working for the Osmond Brothers. And uh, we, be- we went out on a date and got to know each other. And uh, then at the end of my three months, yesterday what was the name of the group uh, that was playing in, in uh, Legends in Concert, left. but. For gosh I, I think it was like every day for like six months I, I called my uh, my wife to be every night <laughs> so that's that's the basic bottom line on that how I met my wife she used to work for the Alzheimer brothers so to answer one of your questions probably is coming up what was my personal life like I couldn't have asked for anything better because I married someone who was a familiar with the entertainment business.
1: Mm-hmm. So, so she was already, she was already attuned to your traveling. She knew that you were going to be traveling. She didn't have any, any issues with that, with her background.
0: Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. She knew what was in store uh, or what could happen, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, then after those, uh, uh, after we moved out of Branson with that show, uh, we went to Laughlin for about a month and uh, uh, played down there for about a month and then got this offer to go to Atlantic city. And we were there in Atlantic city for three years. Now getting up to 1964, um, they were in the area and uh, the, the photographer for 1964, the tribute, he and his wife lived in New York but they would come to atlantic city to check out shows you know on their free time and they came to one of our shows that we were doing at the tropicana um in atlantic city and um i didn't know it at the time that he and his wife were there for the show and they uh, 1964 was looking for another drummer Uh, Because of personal reasons, they had to replace the one they had. Hmm. And after the show, uh, I briefly met the photographer and his wife. And he said, you know, i got to let you know that we're really impressed with you. So we're going to pass this on to the leader of 1964. And so everything started snowballing from there. Um, I got a call, um, uh, uh, yesterday would, would, uh, sometimes travel to different states. Um, uh, we'd take a week or two off in Atlantic city and we'd travel and, and do private shows and conventions in, in other states. And I was standing at a turnstile in Wisconsin, um, uh, it was a R- Rhinelander, Wisconsin. I'll never forget this. And my phone rang, and it was the leader of 1964. And I said, hey, you know, this is fantastic, but I really can't talk now because I'm standing here with, with the group. And um, <laughs> let me call you back when I get to my room, et cetera, et cetera. So our contact continued off and on from there. and. Uh, then when I got back to Atlantic City, uh, we finished our three years, uh, making a long story short here. We finished our three years there, and then we uh, went to Reno and was playing at Harris for a month. And mm-hmm. I got a call again at that time from the leader of 1964, and he said, um, we need you to fill in this weekend because we're having personal problems with our drummer, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, I said, okay, you know, I'll do that. So they sent me the itinerary. I flew to the, to, uh, let's see, where was I? I think it was Vermont or somewhere around there. And, uh, I did my first show with 1964 In 2000, let's see, what was it? 2010.
1: Let me ask you, Bobby. May I ask you how many total shows you did with 1964, or do you have any idea how many total shows you did?
0: Oh gosh, you know uh, the uh, the former George Harrison Tom Work, who lives in Ohio, uh, he kept a ledger, and he has all of the shows on the ledger. And the last last time I talked to him uh, before I retired, uh, I think. Gosh, it was up to like maybe four fifty, four seventy-five, some somewhere in that area. Wow. wow, maybe, maybe, possibly even more than that. But uh, I've played in all fifty states.
1: That's what I wanted. Wanted you to say how you've played in all fifty states. You've played internationally.
0: Uh, yeah, played Canada, South America. Uh, we we went to Puerto Rico, the Bahamas. And like I said, I've been to all fifty states, all major cities.
1: What would what would be the pinnacle? What was the highest point of your of your playing, Bobby?
0: Uh, probably Carnegie Hall.
1: Uh, that's uh, what I was thinking.
0: Uh, I was I was blessed blessed to play Carnegie Hall four times, and uh, then probably my, the the next the next venue close to that was Red Rocks. In Denver Colorado and um, I played that 11 times
1: oh my gosh what is it like to play in a place like Carnegie Hall most of many of us never even have the experience of ever even seeing Carnegie Hall most of us would not what is it like to play in a venue like that to somebody that grew up in there was that grew up in Lawrenceville Illinois what is it like
0: well I'll tell you when we put the show together for Carnegie Hall, um, we decided to play step step away from from just the nineteen sixty three sixty four era that that the, the uh, oh. uh the show basically concentrated on, and so uh, they hired an orchestra uh and and the leader of the orchestra uh was one of the first George Harrisons in 1964 <laughs> somewhere around the beginning okay and his name is Bob Miller and he put this fantastic 11-piece uh orchestra together and uh so we did we we stepped away from the 63 64 and started and we did we did songs like uh, uh Eleanor Rigby with the you know with the orchestra and it was just fantastic. But just hmm. just to back up a little bit, how was it for me? Well, if you know the basic background history of Carnegie Hall, I mean Isaac Stern sat on the middle of that stage and played his violin, hmm. and Frank Sinatra, Judy Garland, you you name it, everybody has been on that stage, and what they did. It, which which was really impressive is they kept the original flooring uh, that w- when they built Carnegie Hall they kept the original flooring but they kept shellacking uh, and keeping hmm. it in shape but you could see these through the through the veneer and, and the uh, uh, whatever they did to preserve it you could see these spots underneath on the wood and I'm thinking hmm. like that could have been a sweat drop from Frank Sinatra, you know, <laughs> and, and uh, Judy Garland stood over here and Isaac Stern sat right here in the middle. So when I walked out on stage for the rehearsal and walked through that door onto the stage, I lost my breath.
1: I bet.
0: Because, because of, yeah, just, just because of, of everything that has gone on there. And I, I look around at, at this 3,000-plus-seat beautiful theater, and I'm going like, what am I doing here? You know, <laughs> if you would have told me in high, in high school that I'd be playing Carnegie Hall, well, you know what I'd tell you? Just <laughs> go yourself. go blank yourself (laughs) so it was a really basic life changing experience you know that I had never suspected
1: hmm wow that is you know um yeah. when you when you started portraying ringo i know it's not just learning his drumming rhythms and learning all that about the songs but you had to you had to master his accent and mannerisms and all that how how daunting was that or was it at all daunting to you to to do that
0: well yeah i was basically lucky when when i first started uh, in the in the fifth grade band uh my music teacher showed uh, showed me how to strike a cymbal. And to strike it properly, you hit it with a glancing blow instead of straight on. I mean, that's the proper Mm. way. And there's two ways to hit it, straight on and then the glancing blow. And then he he said, if you sit down to a a set of drums and you have the hi-hats on the left, and then your crash cymbals and ride cymbals in front of you, you can get a wash out of the hi hats by going back and forth, you know, striking striking them back and forth, and that that is was basically called uh, buttering the bread. It's just like <laughs> taking a butter knife and buttering your bread, going back and forth. So I was lucky there; uh, I was already doing that before the Beatles even hit. Huh. And um and then when the Beatles did hit I said, "Oh, okay. This is what <laughs> I want to do." Hmm. And then I became a full-fledged Beatle maniac, got all the albums, played along with them. Um and then uh, to be honest, when I got into 1964, I was I was still looking and watching videos and and dvds of the beatles uh because mm-hmm. there was a lot of intricate stuff going on mm-hmm. that you couldn't see when you listened to the record so mm-hmm. i could see everything that was happening the mannerisms the movement the application and so it just all came together
1: hmm. Sounds like that's been your destiny, Bobby, that you ended up doing this. I mean, uh, you're you're training and you're just being in the right place at the right time. Um, And I can tell you, for those Uh, of us who never had the opportunity to see the Beatles, I've seen you guys three or four times. And um, it's just such a moving experience because those of us who are baby boomers, that's a huge part of our upbringing was, I mean, our lifestyle was the Beatles really... They set the standard for those of us who liked rock and roll music, and they, after it came out, you know, they came in after the Kennedy assassination, which put a pall, cast a pall over the whole country. I was just eleven years old, but I remember it vividly. And then when the Beatles came on the Ed Sullivan Show, oh my gosh! And then to think that you had the opportunity to be a, a part of the of a group that portrayed them, what an experience!
0: Well, well, yeah, um, yeah. I'm I'm thankful for a lot of things, uh, but <laughs> the most rewarding thing for me, uh, performing in 1964, was seeing people smile and have a great time. And <laughs> there would, there would, and the most amazing thing was is that there would be seven to seventy year olds in the audience. Mm-hmm. And the seven-year-olds would be singing along with the music. They knew the words, or they know the words to the mu- to the songs, and that was mm-hmm. just absolutely fantastic.
1: Oh, God. what is it like portraying someone in a tribute band who is still alive?
0: Oh, um,
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. You got kudos to Ringo and Paul. Um, they fortunately came out of that era, uh, with some smarts <laughs> and, uh, um, I, I think that, uh, both of them are vegans and, um, that's probably contributed to a lot of their, uh, longevity. So, um, mm-hmm. uh, they, they they wanted to continue doing what what they did or what they do you know and and you have to follow uh, a certain pattern uh, you know uh, of what you want to your diet to be like i guess and um it's obviously working for them paul's on tour ringo just finished a tour
1: Did you ever have the opportunity to meet Ringo?
0: Well, uh, no, I stood five feet from him once. um, (laughs) And a friend of mine, Well, to to put this in perspective, uh, a friend of mine from Tucson uh, moved to L.A. when I was still in Tucson, and I lost track of him. Well, I was in Reno playing with Shake, Rattle, and Roll. one time, and they were at Harvey's Amphitheater. Ringo Starr and his All Star Band were at Harvey's Amphitheater, and to make a long story short, the guitar player from Shake Rattle and Roll and me went to uh, Ringo's concert at Harvey's. But we got there early, and uh, uh, so we were probably like the first one of the first ten people in into the the venue. And as we're walking towards our seats, my friend from Tucson is walking up the aisle. (laughs) And I look and I'm going like, Jeff, what are you doing here? (laughs) And he said, hey, Bobby, Andy, great to see you. And he said, what am I doing here? Follow me. And I just looked at at my friend Andy and I I go, what? Follow him? (laughs) What's this all about? And <laughs> so he took us down through through this corridor uh, on the side of the of uh, the amphitheater, and uh, the, first, uh, the first place we came to, here's this six foot eight two hundred eighty pound bouncer standing there, <laughs> and he's, he, he's looking straight at us, and Jeff goes, "There with me." And I looked at Andy and I get to go, where would? what's going on? (laughs) And then we, we, we went through another uh, security point. And when we got to this, uh, when we went through it, we got to this one point where we had to stop and Jeff turned to us and put his finger up and said, be quiet. He's doing an interview. And like, we were for like five feet from Ringo And we could see all these booms, these boom microphones hanging over. And now here's this little tiny head, you know, saying, well, (laughs) I don't know, you know, probably it was this and that. And and he's, he's, he's going on. And I'm going like, Andy, my God, that's Ringo Starr. (laughs) So that's, that's basically the closest I got to him. And, And then after the, uh after we passed that area, uh, he took us up on stage and he mm-hmm. gave me a pair of drumsticks. He said, go up there and sit. And I go, what? He said, yeah, <laughs> just go up there and tap around if you like, whatever. So I got to play Ringo Starr's drums.
1: Oh, how exciting.
0: Wow. Yeah, so that's the closest I got to Ringo. But then another short story is that before i joined 1964 um, the producer for 1964 that did all the that got us into carnegie hall and other places like uh, utah and and vale and aspen and, and we played all these other clubs and and uh private parties he is in the lobby watching uh, keeping an eye on the merchandise for 1964. <laughs> and this, um, he sees this movement off to his left, these people coming down the stairs from the balcony and the show wasn't over yet. It was close to being over, but the show wasn't over yet. And, um, the, the two people start walking towards our producer. And our producer just like freezes and looks and he goes, you're Ringo Starr. And Ringo looks at him and goes, no, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. You're Ringo Starr. (laughs) And Ringo just pauses for a minute and says, I am. And so the the conversation went on from there and, and he said, he said, you know, the bottom line here, Ringo, is, is did, do, did you like the show? And he goes, um, uh, well, you know, Paul and I and Yoko and Olivia, all we're concerned about is that it's presented in the very best possible way that you can, that, you know, anyone can do it. And hmm. he looked at our producer and he said, this is a good show. Oh. So he... Wow, he and Barbara walked on. I guess Barbara was wearing a floppy hat so they couldn't see her, see her face or whatever. But Ringo's wearing a, a baseball cap and sunglasses, and you can't really cover up Ringo's star <laughs> like that.
1: <laughs> wow, so that's, that was, that's I that, that was
0: right. pretty, yeah. I thought that was a pretty cool story.
1: Yeah, no kidding. But that's the
0: closest I've got to Ringo. And um, then one time we were playing uh, at a uh, uh, a TV station in New York City, and one of the hosts is a friend of Paul's wife, Nancy. And we got in conversation with her, and to make make a long story short, um, we we said, "Well, if you're friends with Nancy, does." Paul know that we're here? And he goes, and she goes, uh, yeah, I think so. He's on the West Coast this weekend, but but uh, I'm sure that she has told him, you know, that you're going to be on hmm. TV in New York City. So hmm. those are the, the two uh, closest stories I have a- about the remaining Beatles. But I did hmm. in 1966, I did see the Beatles in, in St. Louis. And I got a picture. A friend of mine took a picture of John Lennon. Their limo stopped right in front of us. Uh, And I'm hanging on the railing, and and John's (laughs) windows cracked. John, and he turns straight for us, straight towards us, and waves. And my friend got a picture. And if I could show everybody the picture I have, I have it framed and, um, Eleven by fourteen, whatever, you know, but John's like waving straight at us. so that's the closest wow. I've been to the Beatles, and wow, that's when the, when the limousine, yeah, the limousine, after it it uh, moved forward again in in the small black window in in the uh, nineteen sixty six limousines, you know the the Cadillacs had that small uh, uh, rectangular window in the back. Well, mm-hmm. as it inched forward, here's Paul and George with their heads together and looking out of that window, waving at everybody. <laughs> so that's the closest uh, I've been to the Beatles. Wow. Anyway. Wow. Yeah.
1: That's, it's, that's just all so, so fascinating to me. And, and I just your story to me is very compelling that from where you started and being a fan of the Beatles and, and all, and then having that incredible opportunity. Gosh.
0: Yeah, I'm, I feel like I'm very blessed, you know, to grow up in that era. And, uh, actually, all of us, you know, uh, in our, our 70s are that way yeah. because I'm sure that, you know, like there was like, uh, see, what was it like? 30 million watched Ed Sullivan on the night of, uh, February 9th, 1964, there was mm-hmm. 30 million tuned in. Wow. And uh, yeah. there's there's a really cool story uh, from George Harrison. He was asked one time, he said, do you know how many people were watching you that night? And he goes, no, I have no idea. And they told him it was 30 million. And then somehow somebody did... Um. A survey for um crime, and they found out after after working on this survey for years that the crime rate in the u s dropped twenty percent that night wow, and they told George Harrison this, yeah, I know it's amazing. And they told George Harrison this, and he goes, oh, even the crooks watched (laughs) us.
1: Wow. I thought that was so funny. What an an era we've lived in.
0: All in all, that is so amazing, though, you know.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: When that happened, everything changed, if you you recall that. I, I mean, probably at the breakfast table the following morning. The first words out of somebody's mouth were Ringo.
1: <laughs> My dad did not like the Beatles. My dad was a country and Western fan, and he, when the Beatles hit the shores, he thought that was the end of modern civilization. So he, he and I did not really agree on that.
0: Oh, yeah. There were a lot of people. A lot of people thought that, you know, like, oh, there's just going to be a flash in the pan.
1: Yeah. Daddy Daddy called them those long haired, long-haired hippies and that yeah, 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 crap. <laughs> he did not like them at all. <laughs> but um, you know, their their music will live on forever, and you've certainly been a big part of helping that. And for those, like I said, those of us who never had the opportunity to ever see the Beatles, seeing 1964 the tribute is the closest we would ever come. And uh you know you close your eyes the music was flawless and 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 it just transports you back to the time when life was in more innocent when we had uh a lot of hopes and dreams for the future, so it was a wonderful opportunity.
0: oh it was a great era I don't, I yeah. don't think there's any dispute about that um and uh I, I think I think it, you know, it gave us all hope again. You know,
1: mm-hmm. uh, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, w- were you glad to? Um, I know that it was probably there were. Were there times, ever times, Bobby, that you got tired I, of doing the? I, you could rotate songs in and out, but you were kind of stuck in that one time frame. Other than when you said you played Carnegie Hall, did you ever get tired of that? Or were you just so thankful for the opportunity?
0: Um, well, both. Uh, the first yeah. answer, first question, no. I never got tired of that. And mm-hmm. uh, yes, I feel blessed to have the opportunity because um, I was picked. They, they whittled <laughs> whittled down. They looked at videos from, from uh, drummers that they had picked in the U.S., all over the U.S., they uh, I, I don't know how they got a hold of all these videos, but uh, they whittled it down to 15 that they were going to pick one out of these 15 to replace the, the current drummer they had. And hmm. I was picked out of 15 nationally. So, yeah, I feel blessed.
1: How many total uh, people have played, or portrayed Ringo?
0: How many people?
1: In, in 1964, yes. How many of you total? Oh,
0: in 1964. Um, let's see. Correct. Um, one, two, three, four. I think I was the fifth, the hmm. fifth Ringo, because the show hmm. now is is going on forty years of being together.
1: Oh gosh, that's phenomenal! That's yeah. phenomenal, and how. You know, so few people have the opportunity to say they were a part of that and to the things you've seen and the places you've been. And when I think of Carnegie Hall, it gives me cold chills to think about how exciting that must have (laughs) been each and every time. I just can't imagine, Bobby, really. And Um, that you can carry that that with you forever. (laughs) What a wonderful opportunity you've had.
0: Yeah, I have. I keep everything close to my heart. All the people that I met, all the places I've been, uh, I I just sometimes it it boggles the mind, but I feel (laughs) blessed to be able to do all that. And I never, ever expected a lot of that.
1: Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure it was the furthest thing from your mind. And, and, uh, I know oh, that absolutely. I had the wonderful opportunity opportunity to meet you when when you guys had your Fire Creek reunion here in Mattoon. That was just the that was oh, just yeah. uh, I still get, the, the fact that you guys are all um, alive and kicking and able to get together and reminisce. It was just wonderful. It was so wonderful. So, so.
0: Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I wish it would have lasted longer. Um, you know, but obviously at that time I was on a schedule. And oh, sure. to get to our, our uh our flight out of Indianapolis, I had to get to bed at a certain time and uh, get up <laughs> at a certain time.
1: Yeah. Sure. Well there's always there are always responsibilities that go with those.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, Bobby, I can't thank you enough for taking taking time to, to come on my podcast and you know, you're, you're my first, you're, you're a celebrity. I've never had a celebrity on here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> only, only in your mind. I'm still the same, Stacy. <laughs> I noticed.
1: Oh, <laughs> well, it's a bit of, it's a real pleasure, Bobby. And, and uh, <laughs> I think I'm going to draw this to a close. You've been such a delight and I've enjoyed your story and, Appreciate you very much. And is your you have a website or anything you'd like to share, or anything else you'd like to add?
0: Um. Well, you know, uh, always a drummer. I, I, I've always been a drummer and always will be a drummer. And <laughs> now, uh, this coming February, we, we'll make a year uh, for since I retired. But I'm starting to get the itch again. <laughs> so if you know any really good oldies bands. <laughs> In Southwest Missouri, you know, tell them to get a hold of you and pass it on to me.
1: <laughs> you have any, you, would you, do you have any uh, uh, email address you'd like to share or your, your Facebook page or a former uh, Ringo portrayer Facebook page, <laughs> anything you'd like to have where people could reach out to you? Um, actually, you
0: can find me, you can find me on Yeah, you can find me on Facebook, um, and it's under Robert Potter. Just like Harry, P-O-T-T-E-R. And, but in parentheses out to the side of Potter is Bobby. So that's how you can tell it's me.
1: Okay, Bobby. Well, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy day.
0: Hey, it's, it's been a pleasure, Wendy. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bobby. This is Wendy Fleming-Dexter. Thank you for joining me today. And everybody, please be kind. thanks for listening to life on the illinois prairie the undercurrents of our american life if you haven't yet go ahead and subscribe to life on the illinois prairie wherever you get your podcast stay tuned for more stories interviews and updates i'm your host wendy fleming dexter until next time Produced by Audovita Studios, connect your voice to the world.